first scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy 10, 10 to 18, and is on page 290. Now I had stayed on the mountain 40 days and nights, as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no brides. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien. And the second scripture package, passage is Luke chapter 19, 1 to 9, on page 1630. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the, be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. You may have noticed Owen read two chapters later in Deuteronomy than what the text was. It's okay, Owen. No worries. Um, Deuteronomy is a beautiful text in that you can pick a lots of different passages and it has very similar themes. I am going to read the Deuteronomy 8 passage, though, to, to set uh, the tone for where we're headed in the message. Deuteronomy 8, 10 to 18. When you have eaten and are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. We've paired these two passages together in the context of talking about generous stewardship. Carrie, if you want to put the first one up on generous stewardship. This is one of our core values here as a church. It is part of how we understand our our vision being worked out, that we are to be transformed by the gospel in such a way that it leads to the renewal of our city and our world around us. And, And one of those ways that we work out that vision is through this idea of generous stewardship. In gratitude for the gifts God has entrusted to us, we are committed to creatively empowering each member to engage the mission of the church with their wealth, time, and other resources. This core value is also expressed in our commitment to generously collaborate with other churches and agencies as we work for Christ's renewal in our city and our world. That first passage out of Deuteronomy is, is essentially God saying to his people as they're coming out of Egypt and, and through the wilderness and headed into the promised land, when you get to that land and when I bless you, don't forget me. Don't forget my character. Don't forget the generosity I have extended to you. It's going to be tempting when you're there to think that all these good things have come about because of your hard work. And you're going to be tempted as you think that to to then turn away from me, to then begin believing that by your hard work you can make a name for yourself, you can make a life for yourself apart from me. Don't live as the nations around you have lived. Trust me. Turn to me. Acknowledge me. It's a message that Israel probably could have heard day after day after day because if you look at Israel's history, they certainly did forget the Lord. Numerous times along the way where the Lord blessed them with riches and prosperity and it is within a generation of that that they've turned their back on God and began to walk away. You think of that time where where David leads Israel in turning their hearts back towards the Lord after after Saul's kingdom and and David leads Israel to start growing and the sense of prosperity starts coming in and, and they begin to experience peace on their borders and then David's son Solomon comes in and Solomon reaps the wealth of the nations. Even nations that are days and days journey away come to bring tribute to Israel and Israel is set at that time to be overflowing with gold and silver and all sorts of riches of the world. And yet it is also during Solomon's time in the midst of all that wealth and prosperity that Solomon begins to turn his heart towards other gods He begins to follow after other gods 
and Israel soon follows after him. Jeroboam, one of the, the kings who come after, right after Solomon, Jeroboam begins to become the standard for all the kings that would come after him as the king who turned and led the people into sin. In the midst of all this wealth and prosperity, Israel's heart turned away from God. They thought that the possessions were their own. And you begin to hear Jeroboam and the refrain coming after him. The new king would be judged as whether they had the heart of David and sought the Lord or whether they had the heart of Jeroboam and led Israel into detestable things and turning from God. Within two generations, all that sense of we are God's people had evaporated in the presence of the wealth and the riches. But it wasn't the wealth and the riches. It was the attitude of the heart towards them. That these are our possessions, that our name is great, that we no longer need God, we can make it on our own. If you read through the Old Testament... God knew those temptations would come as they came into the land and, and there is a, a whole set of laws around how to handle money and how to handle giving and wealth. And just, if we, next slide. In the Old Testament, I'll, I'll be kind of brief here. Um, it really is a, a, a huge amount of study. There's tons and tons of verses that deal with this. But, but to make it short, there's really... Uh, an underlying premise throughout the Old Testament that, that giving is in response to God's generosity uh, and that that giving is really an act of worship and it impacts both our relationship with God, so kind of this vertical relationship, as well as our horizontal relationship, our relationship with, with the people around us. And perhaps the clearest way to see this is, is one of those first stories in Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. You remember Cain and Abel? You remember what they were doing? Cain and Abel, who are, are the brothers the, that are, are sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel come in uh, and, and they're to offer a sacrifice to God. And one of them is bringing uh, the first fruits. It talks about bringing the first fruits of the crop and he's bringing it in and, and Cain kind of goes, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And in the text, there's a distinguishing in the language that in the act of worship, Cain enters haphazardly and Abel enters in with a desire that he would be responding to God's generosity with the best of what he had. There's this response to God that's going on. But along with it, being in this context of worship, we also see with Cain and Abel that their giving became for Cain a comparison of who actually could please God better on their own. And Cain decides that his offering isn't pleasing to God because his brother's offering's better, so he's just going to get rid of his brother so he has the best offering around. And suddenly, this whole response of responding to God's generosity has become corrupted. Corrupted by, by Cain's desire to prove himself worthy to God by eliminating the competition, which he literally does. Kills his brother all over worship, all over responding to God's generosity. As God's people begin to enter in, there are three, enter into the promised land, there's three types of giving that they're called to do. One is the first fruits that Abel modeled. 
And the first fruits were to be those, those first glimpses of new life in a crop. And, and it could happen in the springtime. It could happen in the fall. They had two different harvest seasons that were going on. And they were supposed to take those first evidence that, that there's new life on the trees. Those first pieces of fruit or first stalks of grain and, and to make a great offering out of it. And the people of Israel were to do this year after year after year of, where, of essentially saying and reminding themselves, it's not our hard work that provides for us, it's God's grace that provides for us. So the first fruits were a response to God's generosity of a new harvest. The tithing came in, and the tithing was to be a, a 10% of all the crops from the year. And that tithe was to be brought to the temple on years one and two. And when it's brought to the temple, the family bringing it is to gather around a table and they're to celebrate the tithe by essentially eating it. Uh, there, there's a, a crop of harvest that comes in, whether it's food or even wine, and they're supposed to have a feast at the temple. And while they do, they invite the priests and the Levites to participate. And that tithe was used as a way of providing for the priests and Levites in the temple, but it was also a way of celebrating. See how good God has been. And that refrain of God's generosity, God has provided for us, therefore we give this to God and to his temple to celebrate God's goodness. It was a very festive celebration. In the third year, instead of bringing the tithe to the temple, they were to bring the tithe into the city square and invite all the widows and the orphans and any foreigner who was living among them and say, let's feast together. Let's feast together as a way of saying, God is good. That refrain that we were just saying. That God is good. Look at how good he is that he provides that we can all participate in this celebration together. So you begin to see that both with the first fruits and the tithing, that part of the way God instituted them was so that people didn't kind of closet around their money and say, this is mine, but that their resources became a way of blessing others in the community in response to God's generosity. And the offerings, there's all sorts of offerings that come into play. Some of them are for repentance. There's sin offerings or guilt offerings that had to be offered as a way of saying, God, I'm sorry. Please accept this as evidence that my life is changing. It's an act of repentance. And then there were offerings that were, were for fulfilling vows. They'd make a vow to God, and at the end of that time of a vow, whether it was three months or a year or even ten years down the road, they would bring an offering in to say, God, you have indeed been faithful to allow me to fulfill this vow. And they would offer up another offering. And each time you begin to hear in those offerings that, that they were intended to build up the priesthood, to take care of the priests and the Levites, but they were also intended to be a statement and literally an aroma, because you would smell it all throughout the area, uh, of food being offered up to God to say, God, you have been faithful and generous. You're hearing all these refrains? I mean, we kind of skip over numbers in Leviticus because we're like, oh, it's, it's monotonous. It says the same thing again and again and again, and it does. There's lots of repetition. But in the midst of that repetition, what God is doing and what God's training the people to do is when you are blessed by me, I call you to turn around and become a blessing to others, 
Use the resources I give you to say thank you to me, but more importantly, as you say thank you, to include others and bless the community around you. The prophets begin a little switch that picks up speed in the New Testament. Instead of emphasizing just the tithe or just the offering, they start saying, you're not doing the tithe, and because you're not doing the tithe, you, you've forgotten to take care of the people around you. The widows and the orphans and the foreigners are being neglected. The priests are being neglected. And, and they start emphasizing the relationships with other people and how those relationships are falling apart because God's people are not following through on the different modes of generosity that God has been training them to do. Next slide. New Testament. There's a little switch that happens here. A little switch that happens here. In the New Testament, it's still responding to God's generosity. There's an act of worship that impacts relationship with God and others. One of the places I, I would point us to is in Acts, end of Acts chapter 4 and start of chapter 5. We know chapter 5 pretty well. It's Ananias and Sapphira. It's that scary chapter where they, they bring this, this, uh, this proceeds from the sale of a property and they bring it and lay it before the apostles' feet and, and what they've done is they've lied. They've decided that they're going to tell the apostles they're giving more uh, than what they actually give and they're going to pocket some for themselves. And as they make that offering, the apostles call, on, call them on it and they die. But what happened right before that passage is also important. It's Barnabas who later becomes called the son of encouragement. Barnabas, among many others, sells property and takes the whole thing and gives it to the apostles that the apostles can turn around and give it to those who are in need. There's a pattern being set that, that falls on, on the same pattern of that Old Testament of taking the wealth and the resources that God has entrusted to us and saying, how can these be used to bless others? How can these be used to, to care for other people? And Barnabas sets the example, and Ananias and Sapphira kind of imitate Cain's pattern. A selfishness, a, we're going to make a name for ourselves and puff ourselves up through this, rather than responding to God's generosity by being genero generous towards others. Other patterns start to come in. There's an increased emphasis throughout the New Testament on how giving is tied to our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Think of, of the widow's might that we sometimes talk about. That widow who gives her last two bits. It's not a tithe. It doesn't even qualify to reach the threshold of buying the dove, the cheapest uh, dove or pigeon, the cheapest animal that was required for sacrifice. But she gives the last little bit, and essentially says, God, I trust you. My salvation is not in my money. My salvation is in your provision. And therefore, I turn this over to you. And she's held up as an example of, of not giving legalistically, but giving in response to relationship with God. And James continues that equation and, and says, true religion... True religion is not found in, in our ability to, to follow worship laws and rules, but true religion, religion that the Father considers pure and faultless is this, to look after the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
and polluted by the world has a lot to do with back to that Deuteronomy 8 passage. When you have resources and the Lord has blessed you, do not forget the Lord. Do not forget the Lord. Caring for the poor in this New Testament emphasis becomes the defining characteristic of the church. Paul and Barnabas go to meet with the apostles and tell them essentially, this is what God's doing and we'd like your blessing to go on the road with this. We want to take the gospel news to the Gentiles. And and the other apostles in Jerusalem say, yes, only this. As you go, do not forget to give to the poor. It becomes the mark of what it means to be God's people, that God's people are the ones who attend to the poor. Where do we go with this? I'd like us to turn to Zacchaeus. Pull it up. Thanks, Carrie. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man, but he was a rich man because he took advantage of other people. He essentially, uh, Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, lived in a, a Jewish community in Jericho, but he worked for the Romans. And tax collectors in that day made their money not by just simply saying, here's what the Roman government says you owe, but here's what the Roman government says you owe, and here's what I say you owe on top of that. And they would take a cut off of the top. They would add, essentially, a tax onto the tax that you had to pay him in order for him to say, you actually have paid your taxes for the year. And so he would build up his own pockets and line his pockets by extorting others, essentially saying, give me the bribe and then I'll make sure you're okay with the government. And, and on top of that, he didn't have just the economic influence. If, if he said to the soldiers, sorry, Jerry didn't pay his taxes yet, soldiers would come over and enforce the tax upon Jerry. It was a way of he had both economic and military power at his disposal to make sure that his pockets got lined and he could afford the lifestyle he wanted. As a Jewish man, he knew the scriptures. He had been raised in them. He knew Deuteronomy 8. It has all sorts of passages in it that became part of the mantra of God's people. He knew that God had provided and he knew that when God provided wealth and resources, your call was not to forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. And yet he did. And he went about living in a way that that brought those riches and wealth in on his own. text says Zacchaeus was a short man. We, how many of you know that song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. We're not actually sure if he was physically short. It's a great song. Don't quit singing it. Keep singing it, okay? But, but that's not the point. The, the word that's translated in there for short actually has to do with stature and not just physical stature, but it was stature among the community. It was his reputation. He he was a man who had little reputation or a very poor reputation among the community. Imagine for a moment a man who's so full of himself and he walks around with his wealth showing and his power showing and he wants everybody to pay attention to him. How do you think everybody else feels about him? Yeah, 
not so good. And Zacchaeus had no standing in the community to the point that, that the crowds wouldn't let him up to the front of the line to see Jesus. His wealth and, and prosperity couldn't get him access to this man Jesus that he wanted access to. His power couldn't let him through the crowds to come see Jesus. And so he runs to a tree along the side of the road and he climbs up just so he can see Jesus. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? He spends his life trying to make a name for himself by abusing people and taking advantage of them, and yet he recognizes there's still something in him that's not right. Something about his relationship with the others is off, and because his relationship with other people is off, he realizes his relationship with God is off, and he tries desperately to find a way just to see Jesus. shows again that principle that in response to God's generosity and act of worship, our giving, our giving impacts both relationship with God and relationship with others. Zacchaeus is caught up in the tangle uh, of violating, in essence, Deuteronomy 8. He's forgotten God, and in forgotten God, he's dismissed and taken advantage of everyone around him. amazing how such a little response from Jesus can evoke a change in this passage, isn't it? Jesus comes up to him and says, hey Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And the whispers and the outright anger in the crowd must have risen immediately. Not just shock, but anger and frustration. How can Jesus go to a sinner's house like this? How can he pay attention to someone who's betrayed God's people? How can he turn around and, and trust a man and, and receive hospitality from a man whose only reason he can give hospitality is because he's stolen from everybody? How can Jesus go to his house? And yet that very act of Jesus does something does something to Zacchaeus. The last verse of the passage, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's all sorts of scholarship. What do you mean salvation came? Did he buy his way into the kingdom? He gave 50% of his possessions. Did Jesus say, yeah, that's good enough, you're in. I like your money. That's not really what happened here. Jesus recognized the change in Zacchaeus' heart. He gave 50% of his possessions to the poor, way beyond any tithe requirement, way beyond any requirement in the Old Testament for offerings. In fact, if you add up everything that they were supposed to give and assume that a couple times a year that they had to make these sin offerings and guilt offerings, somewhere around 23 all the way up to 30%, that's where the scholars estimate, of the income each year of the people of Israel went to offerings. The tithe was 10%, but then all the other giving that happened, it ended up somewhere, they guess, 23 to 30%. Zacchaeus' response is, God, my life's been a mess. I give you 50% to the poor. Not for me, not for a name for myself. Give it to them. I'm entering into your way of life, and I want to show you that I'm doing it joyfully. I am, I'm releasing the grip 
that money has on me and on my heart. And then he does one more thing. He says, I'm going to give back fourfold to anyone I've stolen from. I mean, VW is going to have a lineup pretty soon, right? People getting in line saying, VW, you lied to us. You lied about the emissions testing. We bought in. There's going to be class action suits all over the place. And VW is going to be paying out money. But... But Zacchaeus, in that day and age, the legal law of the Pharisees was that if you steal from somebody, you have to give them the full amount you stole plus 20%. There's a little Roman and Egyptian caveat, though. If someone was known as a scoundrel, if they were known kind of that language, this really is a corrupt guy, a real scoundrel, never trust him. If someone was a scoundrel, the way that they would make their name good again and show that they were really changing their way was to give 400% back. They would give back 400%, four times what they had stolen. Zacchaeus essentially is saying, forgive me, God. I'm not trying to hide anything anymore. I recognize that I am a sinner In fact, I'm the worst type of sinner. I'm a scoundrel. And I publicly admit it in front of everybody that my life has been lived in a way that dishonors you. And because of that, I want to make amends. Not to earn my way back in because you've already given the grace to me to acknowledge me and come to my house. And my response to your generosity is, I want my life to be changed. I want a new name and a new way of living. Jesus says, yeah, I see your heart. I see your heart responding to the generosity I've lavished upon you. Salvation is here. This is for real. It's not a gimmick. I see Zacchaeus' heart. He's been changed by an encounter with God. And it shows up in his money. We've been talking about generous stewardship. You can turn the slide off, Carrie. We've been talking about generous stewardship the last several weeks. We talked in the beginning about how generous stewardship starts not with our ability to give with God, but with God's lavish generosity towards us. We talked about how, how everything about us is actually a gift of God's generosity and that the breath of God lives in us. That the first thing we are to steward is not money or time or talents, it's It's the very life God has given us in response to God's generosity in creating us and in redeeming us. And then we talked about how that gift of life, that as we live back to God, that life back to God, we we are to employ all our skills and talents, whether in the church or in the world around us, everything that we have experience-wise, skill-wise, passion-wise, is to be bent and used towards God's kingdom so that others might taste and see that God is good. And as we go through it, now we come to that point of talking about the money. The point of the money is not give this certain amount because God says so. The point in Scripture is not give this amount and therefore your sins will be forgiven. The church has discerned that that is not the approach of Scripture. 
But the approach of Scripture says that if we are to follow God faithfully, every area of our life, including our finances, needs to be submitted to God's generosity. Needs to participate in communicating God's generosity to the world around us. And it is evidence not so much in how much we give to an offering plate, although that's part of it, but in how much we freely give of our resources to everyone around us so that they can experience God's generosity. That God indeed is a generous and gracious God. The question before us today then is, how will we live? Will we live tight-fisted like Zacchaeus did, grabbing what we can for ourselves to make a comfortable life for ourselves at any cost, even the cost of the well-being of others around us? We live in such a way that we see that everything God gives us is an act of generosity that's meant to be given in a way that blesses others and draws them into God's kingdom. I don't know how each of us are going to answer that. I don't know right now, standing here, how we as a community will respond to that. But my hope and prayer is that even with our money, even with something as mundane and ordinary and daily as our finances, that the world around us and the community here gathered in this building will see and experience that God is good and gracious because we are generous. Even with our money, we're not stewarding the money. We're stewarding God's name and God's character and God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't just to reconcile us with God and guarantee us of a future heaven. It was to transform us here and now that through Christ's death and resurrection, everything about us would be brought into the kingdom of God and into the new life that is ours through Jesus Christ. In the coming weeks, actually in a few minutes, Dan, as the chair of deacons, will share some things about where we're headed. And even though the stewardship series around, uh, the sermon series around stewardship is coming to a close today, the idea of this core value of us becoming generous stewards of God's character and the resources God entrusts to us is going to be a theme that continues in the weeks and months ahead. I invite you to enter in with an open heart and open hands. Lord, how have you blessed us? And how might we in turn become a blessing to those around us? Let's pray. We stand, Lord, in the presence of the memorial and sacrifice of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We have tasted your lavish love and the reminder of your covenantal faithfulness in Jesus Christ. We have remembered that, that you who did not spare your own son will be the one who also gives us all good things. We have journeyed in recognizing that you indeed are generous. Help us not to forget you and to forget what you have done. 
Instead, may you help us to remember in everything that we have, in everything that we are, in all the resources you entrust to us, that we are stewards of your name, of your character, of this good news. May you bless others through us, even as you have promised to do. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.